The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by our friend Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Hi, Justin. Thank you. And uh, I just want to say this is the first time we've recorded since the uh, Municipal Finance Conference in Chicago. And not only was it a fabulous conference and I came away with a lot, I also met the Justin Marlowe fan club. Oh, no. <laughs> and you. <laughs> I asked a couple of your former students what you were like as a professor, and they gave nothing but rave reviews, which of course makes sense, and uh, even showed me a couple of, of pictures of them and you. So you you have some really, really big fans out there. Just want to let you know. <laughs> oh, I, wow. I'm, I'm blushing. Uh, and I, <laughs> it's a... Uh... It's a small, a small but deeply dedicated group. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> but that's that's great to hear. And we were, uh, and we were, we were thrilled to have you. Yeah, it was a, it was a great conference. And um, really, I mean, we we talked about some things that we've talked about here on the pod. We've we've talked about some things that we will be talking about here on the pod. So it was a, a great experience at overall. And somehow it was like seventy two degrees in Chicago in November, which does not happen often. So we'll we'll give you that credit so for nice. for bringing that with you. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. So we have uh, t- today is a, as a, a special episode of the pod. We weren't planning to do uh, anything around the election, but as it turned out, the election results were a, a bit unexpected and got us thinking about a whole bunch of different kinds of issues that we thought we might want to bring up in a in a special episode. So that's what we are going to do here today. So we're talking about the recent election results and and some of the things that those results suggest and some things that we're thinking about as a result of those results. And we're going to have a conversation here with Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, who's going to share some of the work that that he and other folks at the Volcker Alliance have been doing, um, not just in kind of anticipating and, and tracking the election results, but again, what it means for state and local finance going forward. So, you know, Liz, we I think when we've talked about here on the pod, particularly the the federal legislation, right? We've talked often about the the trilogy of the big federal pieces of legislation that had these huge implications for state and local government finance. Most recently, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, before that, the uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and then even before that, the the federal support to local governments. And it's just trillions of dollars floating around state and local governments as a result of all this federal <laughs> help, and 
as we were leading up to the election, there was a lot of discussion among state and local finance experts about, well, if the Republicans, in fact, have the red wave that everyone is predicting, then what does that mean for this federal legislation? There's lots of ways, certainly, that that federal money could be uh, maybe not turned off, but slowed or uh, changed or shifted or recategorized or whatever it might be. And so we were kind of thinking, well, maybe maybe that's going to be the thing that shapes the landscape for the next couple of years is is what to do with the federal money now that the rules have changed or now that the priorities for that federal money maybe have changed. But it doesn't necessarily look like that's going to happen now. We'll have divided government, but we won't necessarily have a, a fully Republican-controlled Congress. And so we need to think a little bit about what that means, and that's what we wanted to uh, to get into here today. So maybe first things first, just with respect to the to the the federal election results and those federal pieces of legislation that we've talked about. What comes to mind for you? Anything uh, in, in your own thinking that's changed here? Anything that you're looking at differently as a result, or uh, is it okay to just say we're going to continue on course as though uh, the the election? really didn't have any impact at all. I agree with your assessment that a lot of us were kind of holding our breath for that. I think that, you know, looking at the federal landscape, it's pretty much, you know, a win or at least a non-loss <laughs> for state and local governments in terms of, of you know, that, that security of the federal funding. And I had even thought beforehand, you know, especially with that IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, so many, much of the benefits are that and are in, in tax credits or that direct tax credit that we talked about on an earlier episode, that it's it's a little bit more business friendly than perhaps the Infrastructure Act, which is, here's the money. So that's one aspect. Another thing I'm looking at too is about state ballot measures and speaking of inflation, state revenues have been maybe not on paper slowing because they're still higher numerically than they were the previous year by a nice little amount there. But when you take in inflation into account, latest figures are showing that it's flat in some places or, or lower. So inflation has started cutting into state budgets. And the interesting thing is we've had a couple of state ballot measures um, one in particular in Colorado, where, where they voted to cut their income tax from 4.55% to 4.40%. And there's a couple other measures on the ballot, mostly tax cuts, some tax hikes in, in Massachusetts. But earlier this year, when a lot of these ballot measures are being circulated and thought about and argued for, State, ballot, state budgets were doing just fine. They were scooping up the money, right? And now in November, things are starting to look shaky and your average person sees a tax cut on the ballot and who doesn't want that? <laughs> so it's it kind of really bad. I mean, it's bad timing on, on that one hand. In Colorado in particular, it's interesting because they're limited by the Taxpayer Bill of Rights or TABOR as, as they like to call it. One of the reasons that this came onto the ballot was because Colorado had had surpluses the last two, three years straight, and citizens were getting that tax refund from the state that it's required by Tabor, that it's sort of like, well, if we keep getting this money back, let's just lower the tax rate. Makes sense. Let's get that money up front. But it doesn't really work that way. And it concerns me a little bit just watching that play out. And I wonder what's going to happen, you know, the next year or two years with Colorado's budget, how they're going to be able to adjust for that income tax cut. The other criticism I have of tax cuts or tax hikes on the ballot is 
there's not usually a pay for associated with them. It's just something that lawmakers have to figure out later. But again, um, so that those are some of the things that that I saw coming out of the election, and especially in this inflationary environment and state budgets starting to not look as strong as they were a year ago, would be what I would watch coming out of here. Yeah, definitely. When you zoom out and you think about the origins of the ability to make fiscal policy at the ballot box, bond referendum, all of the, particularly in the Western states, I mean, Colorado is a really good example of that. And you see it elsewhere uh, where there's the, at the time when those state constitutions were written and they were written with this kind of populist flair, there was the notion that the, the, the wisdom ultimately is with the people. And therefore, if you give people the opportunity to sound off at the ballot box on all things, not just who to send to represent them, but all major important policy decisions, that you'll ultimately get better policy. And that may be the case, at least in terms of principles and, and priorities and values. But we know in the world of public finance, the, the practical challenges then uh, become very, very real when you get this mismatch between the, the kind of political business cycle and the actual business cycle. And especially when you layer in all of the federal money, which can really amplify the, the feeling that we are in really good fiscal shape as a state or as a city. And then suddenly things turn very quickly in the economy. Suddenly now there's this added pressure of either tax cuts or a, a, a political mandate to spend less or think differently about spending. And all of a sudden the, the things turn on a dime in, in a way that a lot of cities and states maybe are not fully equipped to, to be able to address. And so it is this, Again, one of our one of our themes on the pod, taking a, a complex thing and making it a lot more complex in the name of trying to make fiscal policy that's responsive to citizens' wants and desires. But because that's not happening, that feedback isn't happening in real time, suddenly the people who have to actually implement budgets, borrow money, collect taxes, their job gets a lot harder as a result. And especially having grown up in one of those Western states with a lot of questions on the ballot, it's kind of a big burden on voters sometimes. And I remember the last time I voted in a California election, it was, I was studying for the GREs and I felt like I'm going through the ballot and looking at all these questions and not knowing what half of them are talking about and <laughs> feeling like I needed to study up on doing that as well. It's like, who has the time? So, so uh, yeah, so you, that, you know, you're also probably not getting the most accurate feedback from all citizens when when you task them with with that much work yeah exactly and some really complex questions particularly as it relates to tweaks in tax policy right it becomes uh, really 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 complex the point too about um uh, you had alluded to this before but it's worth mentioning too you know certainly in the world of state and local finance it's often the case that when we think of elections we think of a bond referendum right we think of local government or local school district going to the voters for new property tax millage to do a new general obligation bond issue to build a new school building, for instance, for those of us in state and local finance, that's kind of what elections often are, at least at the local level, is authorizing some additional spending so that you can go out and, and borrow money. And you know, we haven't done any systematic look at this so far, but it seems like there's been uh, quite a bit of support for a lot of those ballot initiatives. We've heard of some some really high profile ones uh, passing in in all over in in red states and blue states and in purple states, and that's it's interesting. That seems to reflect you know either a, a desire for infrastructure to catch up with the growth in a lot of communities, 
uh, or that same sense of economic optimism that that you were describing before. Uh, and then meanwhile, as soon as those bonds have been approved and as soon as the financial officials in those cities and school districts and counties and elsewhere have to go out and start borrowing money, they're going to run smack into rising interest rates, higher inflation, lots of other potential headwinds. And yet, because we've had so little borrowing and because there's so much federal money that can pay for infrastructure without having to borrow, maybe on the supply side, things turn out okay. You'll just have to kind of see how that shakes out. But that's been interesting to see how um, that that general sort of optimism was reflected in the way that a lot of local bond issues uh, seem to pass without a whole lot of trouble. So we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance. Bill, pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could uh, maybe just first and foremost tell our audience, some of whom might be a little bit less familiar, uh, what's the Volcker Alliance and uh, what role do you all play in this uh, space that we're talking about here with respect to state and local finance? And if you couldn't, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit just about how you yourself uh, got into the role that you're in now there. Well, sure. Thanks, Justin, for tagging me on. Uh, the Volcker Alliance was founded in 2013 by Paul Volcker, former Federal Reserve Chair, who I I knew long ago as a uh, as a young journalist uh, covering covering international finance and covering the the Fed. It's 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 a nonprofit, nonpartisan nonprofit. It's dedicated to advancing his vision of an empowered public sector workforce. That's uh, Paul was for much of his career a public servant. And the public finance part of the Volcker Alliance grew out of an earlier effort that Paul and Dick Ravitch, the former New York State Lieutenant Governor and one of the saviors of New York City, uh, had started called the State Budget Crisis Task Force. I was running the, the state and local operation at Bloomberg News and came over to join the alliance to restart what the State Budget Crisis Task Force had done. So we started grading states on their budget practices, sustainability, transparency, and whatnot. And uh, also, we started a podcast with the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Uh, it's a webinar and podcast series. It's called Special Briefing, if I didn't mention that. Bill, I was curious if you can just kind of uh, speaking of special briefings, this is our version of a of a post-election special briefing. And so particularly since you all had an event last week kind of running through that uh, with a focus on cities, can you talk about some of the big takeaways and what sort of maybe good and bad outcomes there were for, for cities? Well, sure. I'm not sure the election is going to have huge impacts. I, I can think of a couple areas where, where it will, especially if we get into uh, one of these standoffs over uh, overspending or over the debt limit and get into sequestration. That's where we that that's where we kind of get into trouble. Cities, states as well. Cities have been doing very well, but in real terms, inflation is really hurting. In real terms, city revenue is down over the past year. Likewise, uh, state revenue is up very strongly, but. Uh, when you look at it in real terms, it's kind of weak. Sales taxes are being held up by inflation uh, as much as anything else. Retail sales are not weak, but kind of weakish. Uh, so 
we're we're looking at a very mixed outlook. Federal funding is is starting to come to an end. Not capital funding, but certainly uh, uh, certainly the state and local fiscal recovery fund really has to be spent by the end of twenty six, and um, so we're we're looking at some storm clouds on the horizon. It's funny because I've been hearing that quite a bit, and it's true. The federal money is coming to an end, and then that year, 2026, and you look at the calendar and it's 2022, it's not, it's at the end of 22, but still people think, well, that's, that's over three years away, but tell us, you know, explain why that it's, that's, you know, not that long in the term, in the world of government finance. It's not really, it's not really that far away. Number one, that $350 billion of budget money has to be obligated by the end of 2024. So that's one budget away. Uh, so that and many states, many states are are spending this money pretty, pretty fast. A lot of money went into the revenue replacement category, which is kind of a catch all money's going to support the, uh, the the Texas border patrol effort. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at money that is that is going uh, to support ongoing programs in some cases, rather than one time, one time uses New York City, for example, the universal 3K uh, program is entirely supported by federal funds. That's being slightly dialed back right now because the city has got a, a, a fairly large structural budget gap. So you're not seeing the whole world going off a cliff, but you're you're seeing some warning signs right now that, that some of these activities may not be fundable in the future. If enough states are dead set on suspending or cutting taxes, We'll, you know, we'll we'll see state revenue trails uh, trails trends in the economy by about a year. If we go into recession or slow down or slow session, whatever you want to call it, I, I think the revenue outlook is not going to be as sunny uh, by the end of next year. You, you mentioned the, the election bill, and I'm wondering, maybe a bit surprising, we're not in a world of uh, complete Republican control of Congress. So, right. what does a divided Congress mean uh, potentially for? Uh, all of that federal money that has sort of set the stage the way that you just described it. Well, you tell me this. This is uh, this is a Congress. This is a, a House that's not only divided but divided among the majority. Uh, the majority party is. Are they all going to stick together, uh, or or is the the Tea Party wing going to do what it's done in the past, or the or the Trumpist wing going to going to do what the Tea Partiers did in the past? It's really hard to know. Right now, in a way, the uh, inertia is your is your friend. I don't think there's the the votes to repeal the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or any of the big programs. There might be in the case in the case of some kind of a sequestration, uh, an opportunity. Uh, where where Treasury has to reduce uh, reduce some of its subsidies, its tax credits. You remember when the, the Build America bond, Treasury cut back the amount of subsidy unilaterally uh, and ticked off a whole lot of issuers. So that that could happen. I don't think that this is going to be quite quite so fast. Remember the the infrastructure bill funding, uh, the money that's coming on top of the half a trillion dollars of highway bill money, that's going to states and localities around the country. Senators are putting out press releases on this. So do your local members of Congress really want to cut that money off? Uh, it's it's pretty popular, especially with the cost of borrowed money going up. Uh, it's even more popular. 
one big issue that's that's less a political issue and and more more a tactical issue, which is how long will the White House continue to proclaim a public health emergency, which allows the Medicaid expansion states to claim extra Medicaid assistance? If if that emergency, if that COVID emergency is is over, there are going to be a lot of states kicking a lot of people off Medicaid rolls. Uh, and then public assistance is going to suffer. So it's it's that's that's a that's a huge budget issue. Uh, Bill, you know, is there anything in the in the bureaucracy at this point, anything in the rulemaking process or the kind of ongoing implementation uh, around a lot of that federal money that might still be changed um, given the the results of the election? I mean, a lot of it is out the door, like you said, and a lot of it's already sort of accounted for. But there's still a lot of questions about allowable costs, still a lot of questions about what sorts of projects can and can't be done. Is there anything at this point that in that implementation process that the election may ultimately affect? And it depends which bill you're talking about. Uh, the, the the regulations for the inflation for the Inflation Reduction Act, I believe, are still being written. It's gotten confusing enough that uh, the Bloomberg Philanthropies has set up uh, the Bloomberg Infrastructure Hub to uh, to help states and municipalities navigate this and figure out where to apply for the money. Uh, so that's an issue. I, I haven't heard of a, a political dimension to this. That's not to say that it it doesn't exist, uh, but I think it's it's more like just taking its time to get this stuff uh, to get this stuff up and running. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, or maybe continue in, along the lines of that state conversation because we had you know, a hundred something or other state ballot measures this year, as we usually do in the even numbered years. Uh, a few of them for, were for tax hikes, tax cuts. Uh, any any of them that you want to point out in terms of um, what happened and then how that may or may not affect state budgets? Well, sure. Um, Massachusetts was one of the was one of the rare states to uh, to approve a tax increase. That's that's the millionaire tax. What that will do, that may raise more more money, but it also it also makes Massachusetts's revenue more volatile, more risky. So if you look at a state like California, New York, and New York City that rely very heavily on capital gains from, you know, some, sometimes it's a matter of a few dozen wealthy individuals uh, to pay the bulk of the income, the personal income tax. That means that your that your revenue is very hostage to the deal cycle. You know, capital gains go up and down, uh, basically on what's going on on Wall Street these days. So Massachusetts has um, has made a deal with the devil. It's, it's their right to do it. Uh, New York, New Jersey, you know, other other states, other states have very steeply progressive income taxes, but it means you also have to have reserves. Now, states right now are very, very flush with budget reserves, rainy day funds, balances in, in, in the general fund, balances in other funds. So states are just brimful of cash right now. So it doesn't matter. Down the road, it will matter because if you don't have good reserves, you're, you're going to have years when very, very fallow years, the term I'm, I'm thinking of. California in 2014, I believe, passed uh, a referendum really strengthening the rainy day fund in response to that volatile revenue structure. That's very important. Mineral, mineral states like uh, Texas, Wyoming, North Dakota have this same issue as well. So Massachusetts is learning. Bond referendums, New York passed uh, a, a big environmental bond, first one in, in many years. 
that was that was encouraging because uh, you can you 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 can have your opinions about climate change, but there is there's certainly a result and work that needs to be done for for resiliency. There was a lot of school bond issues in Texas that did very well. Texas economy is 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 hot right now, and uh, Texas incentivizes school bond issues uh, because it backs up a lot of them with the uh, with the permanent fund. So those are those are some highlights. Extend that just a little bit, Bill. We've talked a bit here on the pod, and and I know that uh, it's top of mind for you too. Putting a lot of the uh, the referenda that you just mentioned. And thinking about those referenda in the context of future municipal bond issuance, we've talked a lot about uh, the, the uh, you know constrained supply, right? How the, the all the forecasts for issuance are calling for less and less issuance in the in the near future, and there's certainly some trade offs with that. When you think of these recent election results and some of the issues that you just described as forthcoming issues in the in the pipeline, how do they fit into that big picture of where we expect to be for muni issuance in the in the next couple cycles? Well, the muni market is it is funny, as you know, guys. It's driven by tax exemption. It's the last great American tax dodge. Uh, nothing wrong with it. It costs the uh, the uh, the federal exemption on uh, income tax uh, for most state and local issues. Costs the Treasury about thirty five billion dollars a year, according to the Treasury. So it's three hundred and fifty billion dollars, more or less, over ten years. So it's a, it's a substantial subsidy. So there's a lot of demand, and as issuance, you know, as issuance goes down, uh, that's that's really holding up uh, the tax exempt market. It's it's an important bolster against what's going on with interest rates because people's portfolios are maturing, corporate portfolios are maturing. They want to reinvest this in, in tax exempt paper, and there just is there hasn't been enough of it for years, and that's that trend is continuing. So that's going to be very supportive, I think, of uh, of prices in the muni market. So that's 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 one of the I guess the the bright sides, but it's gonna it's gonna it's still going to be more costly until rates go back down to, to zero, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. Right. That in many ways we we should hope that they won't. Indeed. Bill, I want to shift a little bit uh, to a slightly different topic because uh, in addition to, you know, an election uh, and the breaking news around that, we also uh, recently had a municipality file for bankruptcy, Chester, Pennsylvania, and details still unfolding on that. Pensions are clearly a big part of it and debt always. Um, Can you tell, kind of break that down a little bit for us in terms of what you see as the key issues there? Sure. Well, Chester is a uh, uh, a near suburb of, of Philadelphia. It's kind of like Central Falls, Rhode Island, uh, a small post-industrial troubled city in Rhode Island that that was early to file for bankruptcy back in the last the last cycle. Well, back in the after the the Great Recession. So Chester has some municipal debt, but a lot of pension debt, much more pension debt than bond debt. It was under state administration for for years and years, and things aren't getting better. And the state said, "File for Chapter Nine, and work it out." Pensions have been have been swept into Chapter Chapter Nine bankruptcies, not in California because nobody wanted to go to battle with Calpers, uh, but certainly in Detroit and Puerto Rico. So the pensions are on the table. Now, this doesn't suggest that there's going to be a wave of other bankruptcies around the country, but it it highlights pension debt. 
we've had a, a strong stock market lately, but a, a weak stock market since it since it peaked out. That's probably going to raise uh, raise the cost of pensions. Uh, pension funds are earning more on their bond portfolios, but they're taking they're taking a hit on the capital values. So pension pressures are going to return. Uh, they're going to eat up a larger piece of budgets, even fairly healthy budgets like like New York City. The pension liability or pension debt is a trillion dollars in, in change as, as it's measured officially. It's multiples of that by uh, Josh Rao's calculations. He has a new paper on that. Choose your number. It's, it's, it's a large and meaningful number. It's not going away. We've seen some, uh, some jurisdictions like Chicago really, uh, really buckling down and putting more money into, into paying down their, their pension liability. We'll see if that holds up, if revenues weaken. Connecticut is another one. So we're in a transition period, but this, this, is, this is not going away. And we have to watch Chester very closely to see how pensions, how pensions are treated in, in this particular bankruptcy and whether there are other distressed municipalities that, that follow suit. If I remember correctly, Bill, too, a, a, a layer of the challenge with Chester is that they also had like an EPA consent decree to deal with cleanup of the Delaware River. Is that right? And they had a, I think there was some, some stormwater management issues and some major invest infrastructure investments that needed to happen, which is interesting because that also seems to be a pattern with a, a lot of these yeah. sort of distressed you know, jurisdictions. And so you get the pension issue and then you also get the really pressing issue of, uh, you know, environmental concerns and infrastructure investments that they may or may not be able to afford. Certainly when the state gets more involved, that, that it creates an additional, you know, whatever you want to call it, more staying power, so to speak, for the state. But if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like for the time being, at least that's kind of been put on put on hold. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that if you if you look at a, at a couple of recent distressed situations, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, tried to file for bankruptcy the, the the city council tried and it was uh it was thrown out of court because it turned out that the, the city couldn't didn't have the authorization to do that but the root cause of Harrisburg's bankruptcy was the city took on responsibility for an incinerator redo for environmental reasons where the cost ballooned and and Harrisburg had a guaranteed contract and couldn't afford that on top of everything else Jefferson County Alabama the, the root cause of, of that was a consent decree to fix up their, their sewage system. I think uh, one journalist called it a gold-plated toilet or gold-plated plumbing system, but it was a very expensive, very corrupt deal. Um, the county executive went to prison, banks were bribing him, so on and so forth. And the state the, the, the state not only did nothing to help, but precipitated the bankruptcy by uh, by refusing to to let the county continue a wage tax. So not every you know not every jurisdiction is is going to be as fortunate uh, as uh, you know New York, uh, for example, where the where the state can can step in. Uh, this is a big issue in California. And you have a, you have a lot of lot of small small areas with with resiliency problems from fires, floods uh, that don't necessarily have tons of state or FEMA support. Oh, great point. What else? Anything else we haven't? Well, you know, I, it's a couple of things. Couple of things I'm watching. I have a 
I guess I'm the doomster here and, and, and maybe, maybe we'll surmount all these problems, <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we have to keep a, a close eye on working from home and what, what working from home means for commercial property taxes, which are a significant piece of revenue for, for center cities, New York, Philadelphia, work from home and on average is, is it's leveling off at about 50% in, in big cities you know, nobody shows up for work basically on on Friday. Monday is a Monday is a slow day. So we'll uh, there's a lot of Class A, you know, top of the line offices being built right now in Atlanta, New York, Chicago. Those will probably do okay because people because offices are going to migrate from older, less well outfitted buildings to the to the shiny new ones. So what's going to happen? Are these buildings going to be converted into residences? So residential property taxes in the face of, of much lower leasing activity, 20% vacancy rates in cities that, that didn't usually uh, uh, experience it. That, that's, that's a big issue. I want to keep an eye on California and its uh, projected $25 billion budget gap. You know, that's that's about 10% of the general fund. So it's it, it's 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 not an impossible number, but we need to we need to watch that. New York City's got a structural budget gap that it needs to fill probably in the 10% of its budget range. Uh, New York City is budgeting 1.5% labor settlements. And there's no way in this inflationary environment that that's going to that's gonna happen. That That's something to watch. And keep an eye on, on crypto, uh, which is not doing not doing too well right now with, with the, uh, the Sam Bankman Freed episodes. A lot of state and local governments have been trying to figure out how to accept payment of taxes and fees in crypto. Do you do you cash it out right away? Do you hang on to it? Do you allow your pension funds and uh, and municipal investment funds to invest in crypto? Uh, it's it's kind of a new world, and uh, this it's it's not going through a particularly good period right now. So we we should we should be watching that. And there were, as I recall, there were some. Some state and local pensions with either direct exposures or indirect exposures, right? And um, and you know, it makes perfect sense in some ways, given just as you were describing earlier, the the need to migrate away from uh, in, a, in a super low interest rate environment, you know, creating additional incentives to look at alternate investments, whether it be real estate, hedge funds, private equity, or more recently, crypto. And here we are now with not lots of exposure, but enough exposure that it seems like that could be a real headache for a few pension plans that that kind of decided to go there. Yeah. I mean, my rule of thumb is uh, and, and a, a lot of investors that, that supposedly are a heck of a lot smarter than, than any of the three of us. Uh, if you can't explain this <laughs> in, in about three sentences, why, why are you throwing money at it? Well, you're throwing, <laughs> throwing money at it because, because it was moving. Well, Bill Glasgow, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. We want to, uh, on our way out, give you uh, one more chance to talk about your yeah. podcast where uh, one can hear a lot more about some of the things we've been talking about today. Well, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity, uh, Justin and Liz. And uh, please do uh, give the Special Briefing podcast a listen. You can just uh, uh, search for Special Briefing on Apple, Google, or or wherever you get your podcasts, and we're also uh, we're also a, a webinar every month. Thanks for coming on, Bill. My pleasure.
All right. Well, thanks again to, to Bill Glasgow for a, a great conversation about the election and uh, lots of issues that the election raises. Always a pleasure to talk to him and to be able to talk about all the great content that the Volcker Alliance puts out. I know we've all used it in our own work, and it's great to see good work being done by others who care a lot about uh, quality analysis uh, in the world of state and local public finance. So it's now time for an audience question. We're always uh, pleased to have the chance to answer questions from you, the listeners. And this week's question comes to us from Sarah in Hinsdale. Hi, my name is Sarah and I'm from Hinsdale, Illinois. My question is related to sin taxes. And I'm wondering why higher sales taxes or sin taxes are not invoked on the sales of guns or ammunitions, if that's due to lobbying efforts or, or what's the rationale? Well, thank you very much, Sarah. Excellent question. And uh, uh, Hinsdale's a lovely place. Glad to hear from you. So there's sin taxes on lots of stuff, alcohol, tobacco, uh, you name it, lots of other kinds of taxes that are imposed with the goal of uh, kind of two goals, right? One to to try to discourage the consumption of whatever it is or whatever to, to discourage that activity, uh, but also then to, to generate some revenue for it and often to generate revenue for it to, to be put into programs designed to prevent uh, whatever that is, whether it's smoking cessation or alcohol control or whatever it might be. And uh, so in some sense, Ammunition fits squarely within that model of something that you would impose a uh, a syntax on to try to reduce the consumption of and to try to have some resources available to deal with the negative externalities of of it. And I think it seems like it's been pretty recent that the notion that uh, gun violence was uh, a negative externality and a public public policy problem that could be addressed through syntaxes and through a broader public policy response. And, and some disagree with that notion. But if you do buy into that notion, and public health officials in many states and localities have adopted that as an assumption, then it naturally follows that you would say we should tax ammunition the same way that we would tax anything else that, that we would apply a syntax to. This has certainly been tried in a few places. Uh, City of Seattle has a, a syntax on ammunition, like a nickel per round. Uh, there's been some debate about having a similar kind of tax here in Cook County. But as has been the case, uh, lots of other places, these syntaxes are challenged in court, right? There are, there are folks both um, in terms of the, the gun rights lobby, but also those who have a particular view on taxation that argue that applying taxes this way uh, violates any number of different tax principles of fair taxation and have been able to successfully defeat a lot of them in the courts for that reason. So it's an interesting situation where uh, the, the principle and the analysis from a policy perspective makes some sense, but then there's other legal, practical, philosophical considerations that have gotten in the way of, of uh, implementing these kinds of syntaxes on ammunition in lots of other places. Um, Liz, I know you've uh, have an interest in this as well. And uh, how did uh, Sarah's question strike you? Yeah, it was such an interesting question, and honestly, one that I had hadn't thought of before. So I'm really glad she asked it, so we could <laughs> figure out what the answer was. <laughs> but it does. I mean, with what you have have said, and 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 kind of laying it out like that, it's it it to me, it's kind of another example of 
doing something in the spirit of, of you know, point XYZ, but not necessarily doing anything that has an actual financial impact. And given that this is super, super rare, and the fact that, say, you, in, in Seattle, for example, you can, you can have a tax on, on ammunition, but there's absolutely nothing to stop people from buying their ammunition somewhere else without the tax. You just drive over to the next city or county line. And, and that there have been studies on, on that in terms of displacing who, where you're doing the shopping. There was uh, several years ago, Mathematica did a study uh, on the soda tax in Philadelphia. And again, another syntax meant to kind of change behavior. And it did, but not in the way that they intended. Right. Uh, right. People did buy less soda in Philadelphia, but they were mostly buying it across the city line somewhere else. That's what the study found. And I think that tax was ultimately repealed. And so it, it there's there's that issue with with this sort of thing too. If you don't have a widespread adoption of it, it doesn't really have much impact, and so it's it's more of like a, a head nod to something. the The other aspect with this one compared, I think, compared with uh, other types of syntaxes like tobacco, there's not really much of a distinction between different brands of cigarettes or different smokers. Some people smoke more, some people smoke less, but the, the actual activity is basically the same. With guns and ammunition, it's a little different. Uh, there's a lot of people who buy guns and ammunition to go hunting for sport and things like that, and who aren't you know, going to go shoot up a school, for example. And the, the idea of passing, of having a tax that's aimed at the larger that affects all of these groups that is really meant and kind of instigated by a subsect of the group that also has has issues as you pointed out constitutionality for for one but i think that kind of distinguishes this particular syntax compared with some of the other ones which are pretty simple alcohol tobacco straightforward guns and ammunition not so much definitely yeah those are excellent points and i i think you're 100 correct implementing syntaxes this way really are kind of stretching the the boundaries of using public finance to pursue broader goals which of course that's at the end of the day that's what public finance is right it's 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 a way it's a set of tools it's a set of implementation tactics to to try to bring about certain kinds of policy outcomes when we get into as you're saying syntaxes that don't apply very broadly that are easily evaded that are being applied to economic activity that's not really happening there in the first place. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but I would imagine there's not nearly as much ammunition purchased in Seattle as there is in central or eastern Washington. At what point then it becomes a question of uh, signaling of nodding ahead to values as opposed to to actually implementing a public policy. Now, the, the proponents, I'm sure, would say, that generating a few million dollars a year to be put into gun violence prevention is a worthy cause and is a policy goal in and of itself. And there's probably something to that. But just as you're saying, when it becomes a question of scale relative to the revenue generated by taxes on all of these other kinds of syntaxes that have been in place where it really does have um, arguably a, a deterrent effect because of the economics of it. And it does have an effect on changing policy priorities, because you now have new resources to pursue policy priorities in a different way. It does raise that question of where's that threshold, right? At what point do you do you get to scale? At what point do you get to uh, a series of financial and economic impacts 
that we can look at and say, okay, we are now using public finance in a powerful way, um, as opposed to doing it in a symbolic way. And there's nothing necessarily right or wrong about either of them, but it does it does raise that question of using using public finance tools in, in a more sort of traditional way versus a way that we seem to see a lot more of it these days. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.